You are listening to From Sobriety to Recovery with Jesse Mogul, episode 166. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to From Sobriety to Recovery. I am your host, Jesse Mogul, and I am in addiction recovery. Boy, oh boy, we have had some great episodes over the last couple weeks. You know, ever since I went through the CPRS training, and it's just been, you know, mind opening and just absolutely just enthralling. And, you know, Alabama's is happening and it's amazing. And I'm just so excited and thrilled to continue to bring you guys information about what it is I've experienced through this training. And perhaps you will go off and do it on your own. Again, take your state's name and then put in CPRS or Certified Peer Recovery Specialist into the Google search. See what comes up. And we're going to jump right in today because I have a feeling that this is going to be a really powerful episode and no reason to hem-haw and beat around the bush. We have talked about stigma last week, about how yourself, the public, and institutions can stigmatize you. And we discussed how that's rejecting, avoiding, and fearing people that we perceive as different than us. Different values, beliefs, opinions, experiences, right? Race, creed, color, sexual preference, all of it. There are stigmatizing language patterns that we are using, we are judging, we are labeling. And it is causing us to fear, reject, and avoid. So today we're going to talk about recovery language patterns. Now, I have been discussing language patterns in this show since the, the beginning of it. And the way I talk with you guys, you know, desirable, undesirable, healthy, unhealthy, over good, bad, right, or wrong, I, I strategically am doing this on purpose. Because I really feel like after hundreds and hundreds of hours of listening to me, you'll begin to shift the way that you talk, that you'll begin to use more empowering language where you are mindfully and with full-on self-awareness um, embracing the world that you're creating in your mind through active attention rather than just saying, oh, he's bad. Be like, okay, well, that behavior is undesirable. How can we help shift it? Do we want temper tantrums in Walmart over a candy bar? No, we don't. The child's not a bad child. It's just doing something that's undesirable in the moment. The behavior could be perceived as bad by other people, but that's them stigmatizing the child. And they're probably looking over at the parent going, you're a bad parent. You're raising an unruly kid. That's stigmatizing. They have no idea what's going on in that parent's life, that child's life that's creating this experience that they're having in Walmart right now. So when we talk about recovery language, we want to be extremely mindful about how we're talking about other people who are living a life in addiction and how we are now experiencing our lives in sobriety and recovery. And I've thought I had this pretty worked out, but this manual really opened my eyes up to even how I am still using disempowering language patterns. And again, ethically, I can't read out of this manual line for line, but I can absolutely pull out certain excerpts and introduce them to you and create a conversation around them. And so that's what we're going to do today, because I really do believe that the language patterns that we use, it's how we say the word. The, how we say our world is how we begin to experience it, and we have been now. There's a great quote in here by a person by the name of Otto Wall that says, Words have power. They have the power to teach, the power to wound, the power to shape the way people think, feel, and act toward others. Yes, they do. I remember there was an old sort of like rhyme when, my, when I was a kid that, that went like this. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but names can never hurt me. That is not true. If we 
you know, there's a, let's look at where we're all, you know, let's all just step back into our six-year-old brains for a second. We're all in school, we're all in class, and then, you know, we wear something, you know, that is outside the norm in class, some loud, colorful shirt, right? And everybody starts calling us, I don't know, the Kool-Aid man, right? Now, all of a sudden, if we feel embarrassed about that, we, the next, we don't ever wear colorful shirts again, right? We want to, to wear colorful shirts. There's something about the colorful shirt that we as six-year-olds wanted to wear to express ourselves, but we felt ostracized. We felt embarrassed or humiliated, so we got called the Kool-Aid man, so we didn't wear colorful shirts anymore. That's stigmatizing. That's labeling. That's making somebody else feel bad for a choice they made. Okay, you wouldn't wear this Jackson Pollock shirt, but I want to wear a Jackson Pollock shirt. I did. I was that kid freshman, sophomore year at Daytona Beach at Mainland Senior High who wore ridiculously colorful clothes. I mean, ridiculously. And I would wear like red, blue jean shorts with like this, I can picture it in my head right now. It's got reds and yellows and blacks and blues. I mean, it looked Jackson Pollock. It was out of control. And I wore this outfit regularly. I don't remember if I was made fun of for it because a lot of people dressed differently there. So it was, it was a very, um, there's a lot of different ethnicities and, and people there. So there was a, there was a lot going on and there's all these little subsets too. So I was not in any of the cool subsets. I was in the nerd subset where we went and played chess during lunch and, and, and <laughs> talked about sports all the time. But my point is, is that I wore whatever I wanted and I don't remember being teased for it. But when we start to use language that ostracizes Right now, all of a sudden, what happens if it that does cause the child to no longer want to wear colorful clothes, and that's something that they really wanted to do, and now they go through their life feeling like if they dress abnormally, differently than everybody else, that they'll be made fun of. So they begin to conform at a young age, and that becomes a prolonged behavior. And by the time they get to college and high school and and out to the real world, they're just so used to conforming so that they don't feel ostracized that they aren't even expressing who they are anymore. This absolutely could become a behavioral pattern that could lead to addiction because the easiest social circle to join is the addiction one. They will, they will embrace anybody who shows up with drugs and alcohol, whatever the substance of choice is for that group of people. You show up with it. You could dress like 87 Kool-Aid mans and no one's going to care. You showed up with blow. So when we talk about recovery language, we want to really talk about the way that we are framing ourselves in our own mind that could be stigmatizing ourselves, and then also how are we stigmatizing others? This is why it's after the stigmatization episode, because words have power. They teach, they wound, they shape the way people think, feel, and act. The pen is mightier than the sword. So how are you pinning out your own life? How are you pinning out other people's? So there's some really awesome ones in here. And again, I'll pull some about. So they call it worn out language versus language that promotes acceptance, respect, and uniqueness. Um, the first one that's listed is the, is the mentally ill. Calling somebody mentally ill. Right? So they, so they could recommend just saying it in a way like people with mental illness. People diagnosed with mental illness. People with lived experience of mental illness, right? That all of a sudden takes the title away. It's like, oh, they're mentally ill. That, that's an identity statement. They are this rather than, oh, they are a person with this mental illness. I have a member of the tribe who, um, who openly within the tribe discusses how um, borderline personality disorder was something that she was diagnosed with. Well, she had attached her identity to this. So when she 
when she presented behaviors that fell within the borderline personality disorder, right, then her or people around her in her, in her circle would, you know, would look at that like, oh, you're behaving like this because of this illness that you have. Through some very active and meaningful conversations with her, she began to open up her own perspective to that may have been what she was diagnosed with then, but that is not who she is now. She is not borderline personality disorder. She is her. That is just something she was diagnosed with. So when we equate people with a diagnosis, right, now all of a sudden that becomes who they are. Oh, they are autistic. They are an addict. Oh, they are, um, they are schizophrenic. Right, this is just something that people have or are, and I know you might hear me throw autistic in there and be like, Jesse, people are born with that. That's right. Well, they have said that people are genetically inclined to be born with addiction. People are genetically inclined to be born with schizophrenia. And I have said this for years and I will continue to say it. There first of all, we shouldn't be making fun of people in general for who they are. But absolutely, we should not be making fun of and stigmatizing people for the way they were born. This is why when I hear people making fun of others for having a big nose or big ears or receding hairline, I'm like, that's how they were born. Now, you go and inject a bunch of Botox in your face, okay, there might be, a, <laughs> might be an opportunity to make fun of you if you're a stand-up comedian or you're having some jokes with some people. Like, okay, I get it. Like, okay, that person, they went and did that to themselves. But when people are born... Like, that's just, that was, you know, whether you believe in God or a genetic code or science or whatever it is, like, that's just how they were born. Tearing somebody down for how they were born is ludicrous to me. It's, it is, it is, it is abomination. It is rude. It is beyond rude. So saying that somebody is mentally ill and then, you know, saying, oh, well, you know, and then st- stigmatizing somebody with a, uh, who has got something going on in, in, in that mental aspect and notice I'm, I'm very mindful of how I'm using my words right now because I want to project this idea of possibility and open-minded um, language patterns. So when you've come across somebody who, you know, I could say, well, suffering from a mental illness or, you know, they, oh, you meet somebody who's mentally ill, you meet somebody who's got a little, who's a little different or, or weird. I, there's a reason why I'm being mindful to break myself of the habit of using those words because we're looking to start opening our mind up to the possibility language here. So instead of calling somebody mentally ill, right, which I have absolutely heard people born with autism called. So somebody isn't autistic, it would just be a person with autism. They are, they are other things outside of autism. They are, people are other things outside of alcohol, right? Oh, they're just an alcoholic. No, they are a person with alcoholism, and now I'm a person with addiction recovery. And we're going to get into that here in a minute. So there's another one in here. Um, like Jesse is mentally ill, or it could be Jesse has a mental illness, right? Illnesses can be somewhat healed from, right? I mean, you know, if, if, if somebody has cancer, that's an illness and it can be healed from. Somebody has schizophrenia, they can be healed from that, right? So instead of Jesse is, which is a labeling term, it could be Jesse has. I have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. I am, Jesse is bipolar, is, is, it's a label. Stamp it on his forehead. That is beef. That is pork. That is chicken, right? That is a label. That is, and the labels are stigmatizing. Whereas Jesse has this, or Jesse is a person with, is, it just means that is a facet of my being, but it is not who I am. 
right? We want to avoid equating the person's um, identity with the diagnosis. And that's, you know, that, that is a literal line out of this. But I have literally just been saying that before I even read that. We want to be very mindful of how we're using identity-based statements to label and stigmatize people, right? I am a person first who also happens to have alcoholism. I am not alcoholism. No one goes to a meeting and says, I am Jesse, I am cancer. I am Jesse, I am a person living with cancer. I'm a person with cancer. I am other things outside of the cancer, just like I am other things outside of the alcoholism and the addiction. Right? Jesse is an addict. Okay, that's worn out. That's labeling. There's a stigmatization that comes with that. How about instead, you know, Jesse is addicted to alcohol or Jesse is in recovery from alcohol addiction. It's so amazing as I read through some of these, how much we have already been doing this in this show for 160 some odd episodes. I am a person living in uh, living a life of long-term recovery. Young people in recovery say that all the time. I love them. I think they're, they're a great organization, Right. Put the person first. We want, to def- we want to avoid defining the person by their struggles, by the things that they are challenged by. Right? You know, would, would you say Jesse is cancer? Jesse, you know, would you say Jesse is, like what I have said, my mom is Crohn's. She was a person living with Crohn's. She has Crohn's disease, but she is not Crohn's. Right? Uh, worn out language. You know, Jesse is normal. Jesse is healthy. Right, that dictates by saying, "Oh, Jesse is normal." So then, 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 according to whom? According to whom am I normal? Because in a certain group, right? Let's go back to public stigmatization. If in a certain group we all agree that wearing a Kool Aid Man, you know, loud, colorful shirts heretofore called Kool Aid Man shirts, we all agree that dressing like the Kool Aid Man is cool. Then we're all then we all think we're normal. And then we see somebody else wearing beige, and we think they're abnormal. But in their their world, people wearing Kool-Aid man could be seen as abnormal and more people wearing beige is normal. It is just what is quote unquote normal according to their crowd, according to their group. But their group is, is not the bar for which the world needs to raise itself upon. You are not the bar for which the, all, the entire world should be trying to rise to. You are just one person in this infinite planet of awesomeness that has achieved some things that other people could be inspired to also want to achieve, but you are not the bar for which the entire world should set itself upon. So, so using words like normal, and I've heard, I've heard people hit me up on Instagram and say, I just want to be normal. Well, according to who? What is even normal? How do you define normal? Well, I just want a nine to five job. I just want a mortgage. I want to get married. I want to have kids. Okay, I can see how societally that does seem like a normal. But I can also assure you that there are plenty of people out there who aren't married, who don't have mortgages, who don't have 2.3 animals and don't have 3.5 dogs or children, right? And they can easily consider themselves, quote unquote, normal. So there is no definition of true normal. There can be doctrines and ideas set down by institutions, but that is normal based on their own ideas. But it is not what the entire world has agreed to as normal. Yes, I think we've all sort of agreed that because we can walk, that all of us crawling around on the ground as 40-year-olds would be considered abnormal. 
but there might be a whole indigenous tribe in the middle of the rainforest who crawl around on the ground because if they stand up and walk, they're seen by predators as being something that could threaten them. And then they're attacked by, I don't know, rainforest monsters. So they all crawl and that's normal to them. And walking up on our two feet, might, they might blow their mind. Like, what are you doing? The rainforest monster is going to see you. So normal is subjective perspective. What are some other worn out words here? You know, um, it, it, my name's actually even used in this. It says, Jesse is low functioning, right? And then, so that's the worn out, right? That, that's that's non-helpful. That's non-possibility driven language. Um, Jesse has a tough time taking care of himself, right? Jesse has a tough time learning new things, Right? Rather than, you know, and, and you know what? This is really powerful. If you start, you know, and again, you could start to learn, you could Google recovery language patterns or positive language patterns. Um, if I wrote blogs, I might write an entire blog about this, but I don't do that. Um, but this is something you could be saying about children too. Whenever you have somebody labeling a child, oh, they're low functioning. They're a, they're a bad learner, right? That's worn out language. What about... Jesse just has a tough time learning new things. This child is just has a tough time learning new things. This child just um, this child could use some extra attention in order to learn. That's very powerful, very powerful. Jesse is manic, right? Or what about just Jesse has a lot of energy right now, right? We want to label children with a ton of energy as ADD and ADHD because they, right? Oh, they're just a child. Like their, their engine is firing on all cylinders. They're growing every single day. They're learning new things every single day. Their mind has not experienced the depth and, and the awe that our minds at 30, 40, 50 and beyond have. 20, 15 even. A four-year-old is seeing brand new things they've never seen before every single day. That would blow their mind. So yeah, they're running around with a ton of energy. They're being a little obstinate, but they're not a bad person. They're not manic. They're just experiencing life. And they may not know how to societally behave, you know, quiet down, be seen and not heard. Right? And this is ways that we can guide them to be more, um, you know, behave a certain way in public, but to call them manic and label them, you know, as ADD and, you know, unruly, it paints them into a corner. And over a long period of time, you keep pushing somebody like that, and they could find themselves trying to heal through those traumas of being labeled as something as a child, and who knows how they're going to decide to heal themselves through those traumas. And as trauma-informed people, we understand everybody has a trauma they're seeking to heal from. And somebody might have felt um, ostracized by the family, so they start to seek attention from, let's say, opposite sex as soon as they become of age, and they start, and their hormones start to kick. And before you know it, you know they always have a boyfriend or they always have a girlfriend. They always have a sexual partner because they didn't feel like they were loved and connected in their family, so they start to seek love and connection other places. And it could happen as simply as labeling them a certain way that has them feeling like they are no longer included in the family unit. Calling somebody very difficult, calling somebody, uh, you know, uh, uh, passive aggressive, calling somebody oppositional. These are worn out language patterns, right? Instead, and yes, you have to use more words whenever you want to really step into this world of open-minded recovery language. You know, Jesse is very difficult. It could just be Jesse and I don't see eye to eye right now. 
you think I'm being difficult. I could think you're being difficult. So now we both think we're being difficult. So there's no communication in order to heal ourselves through this moment and actually start to get along. It is astounding to me the amazingness that you can learn, you know, by stepping into some of this. And there was a part in here I want to make sure I cover. Oh, yeah. So there was these consider this. And so there's this don't do part. And again, not reading word for word, just for the ethics of it. But there was absolutely a part which says um, being being very leery of sensationalizing a mental illness. Right. So when we use terms such as afflicted with, suffers from, victim of, those can be some more sensationalizing. Right. So we want to emphasize the abilities and not the limitations. All right. So a per, they're a person with schizophrenia rather than they are schizophrenic. Right. Am I suffering from alcohol addiction or am I a person with alcohol addiction? Right, suffer from is sensationalizes it. It, it. It's almost like the alcohol is the abuser and I am the abused. You know, Jesse, you know, Jesse suffers from a mean father. Jesse suffers from alcohol, from being from alcohol rather than I'm a person living with, uh, living with a father who is, uh, figuring his own way out of how to parent. I didn't think about that example all the way through. So I sort of got stumbled on my words. But Jesse is a person living with alcoholism. Not, I am an, not I am alcoholism. I'm not suffering from it. I'm not a victim of alcohol. I am knowingly putting this into my body. So I'm a person living with alcoholism. All right. Is it person with? All right. Rather than I'm an alcoholic, I'm a person with alcoholism. And somebody at my recovery Dharma meeting said that he's like, you know, perhaps at these 12 step meetings, you could say instead of, hi, I'm Jesse, I'm an alcoholic. You could say, I, I'm Jesse, I'm a person with alcoholism. So he turned me on to that phrase before I even saw it in this manual, before I even learned it in this class. So this, this recovery language is positive language patterns. It's already being utilized out there. I'm just bringing it into your awareness. The, rather than going through this word for word and teaching it to you, right, which again is unethical and, and definitely would violate rules, more importantly, it's that I don't necessarily have to give you 150 different examples of how this could show up in your life. I merely just need to bring your awareness to how you might be utilizing stigmatizing language patterns in your own day-to-day life, right? It even says in here, don't portray successful people with mental illness as superhumans. And this is one of the things I talk about in a lot of my speeches and stuff is that I'm not superhuman because I am successful in my addiction recovery, right? This is, nothing I'm doing here is something that you couldn't also achieve, you could absolutely positively also achieve this stuff if you decided to prioritize it. But you might decide to prioritize something completely different. It's up to you what you determine to prioritize. But whatever you determine to prioritize, you will get better at it. I decided to prioritize jumping rope about 15 to 30 minutes a day as part of my getting my steps process. And I have gotten way better over just one week of doing it than I could have possibly have imagined I would have. It is, it is insane to me how, how fast the muscle memory and the hands and everything begin to work together in order to create somebody who 
jump ropes more effectively than just how I used to because I, I chose to prioritize it. How are you prioritizing your addiction recovery? And then how are you using language patterns that show people the possibilities of what it is you're achieving? People in your life, people in your own home, how are they using these um, worn out language patterns? Right? Somebody is manipulative. Somebody is non-compliant. Somebody is low functioning or high functioning or resistant or paranoid or, or a cutter, chronic mental health. Right? Oh, you know, uh, I know someone who has been a cutter in the past. They are not, I mean, that's labeling them. They're a cutter. They'll always be a cutter. They are, that's what they are. No, this person expressed their, their emotional anguish through self-harm. She hurt herself when she was upset. That was something that she was doing. It is absolutely something that she can heal through and stop doing. We want to be very mindful when we start to use these language patterns around. And again, the easiest way is, do you start to notice that what you're saying sounds labeling? Does it sound judgmental? Does it sound like something that you would say that would stigmatize somebody? Is it, some, is it, is it a word pattern that rejects, um, avoids, or brings about fear? Oh my God, they're schizophrenic. I don't want to be schizophrenic. I don't want to be bipolar. When you say those things, it's because, right, it's obviously there, no one wants to be living with that. No one says, you know what I would love? I would really love it if I was schizophrenic. I think that would be great. That would be awesome. Oh, boy, I mean, you know, life is good and all, but, oh boy, I really, I could really use some alcoholism in my life today. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I'd, I think I'd love nothing more than to just burn my whole life down for the next 20 years. That'd be pretty cool. Yep, yep, yep. Like, nobody thinks that way. <laughs> we have pain. We have traumas. We seek to heal them through various means. And some of those means are detrimental to us. Hell, somebody who decides that they're going to, you know, come out of alcoholism and, and step into addiction recovery, working out six hours a day, that can start to break down their joints, break down their bones, start to break down their tendons. And before you know it, they're in chronic pain. They need to have surgeries. Six hours of working out a day, probably not the best solution. We're looking for, you know, uh, we're looking for things to be done in moderation. So when you start to notice yourself using these words that label others. Realize, you know, that it is your opportunity to rephrase it. That, oh, they're they're just manic, or they're they're she's just a bitch, right? It could be she is expressing her emotions in a way that seems familiar and comfortable to her. May not be something I'm enjoying, but it, your version of bitch might be somebody else's version of nice. They might, be, they might have experiences of people acting so much worse than this other person that what you think's bad, they think, are you kidding me? That's baseline good. Well, I'd love it if my partner treated me that way. Calling somebody lazy. I, that, that's one that gets me all the time. I don't think people are inherently lazy. They think that they're, uh, they're, they have not found the motivation within themselves to do the thing you think they're being lazy about. 
right? And it could be environmental. It could be mental. It could be physical. It could be emotional. There's something that they have not, their unconscious motivators have not been attached to this behavior. You think they're being lazy around. Oh, they're just lazy. They don't want to mow the lawn. Oh, they're just lazy. They don't want to go to work. There's so many different reasons why they may not want to go mow the lawn or go to work. Lazy is, to me, lazy is a lazy way of labeling that person. If there's anything lazy happening in that moment, it's you using the word lazy to define them. They are just unmotivated. They have not attached the meaning to it. Yeah, they want the money. They want the accolades. They want the title, but they don't want to do the work for it. So why is that? What is that that's happening in their life that's creating that? Right? They may just not have found anything about that job that sparks them. Now, is it up to them to go find a job that sparks them? Yes. If they're not going to do that, then yeah, they need to step up. Either they step up or the job releases them. There are other opportunities here. But just la- labeling somebody as lazy, it's like, that's a stamp. That's it. That's who you are. We cannot do anything with that. That is just who you are. We either have to get used to it or blow you out of here. Whereas a really powerful leader, a really a great boss would sit down with that person and say, hey, you know, I'm noticing you just don't seem all that motivated to do spreadsheets. Seeing that you're not taking care of the cover, you're not doing the cover sheets on the TPS reports. You know, we, we said we wanted cover sheets on the TPS reports. You don't seem to be doing it. I'm just trying to understand what's going on with you. Right? Let's, I want to understand your motivation for not doing it, and maybe I can help you see why it's important to us that you do do it. But I'm not just going to label you as lazy. That's not getting us to a solution. Causing somebody schizophrenic, calling somebody paranoid, calling somebody an alcoholic, calling somebody a drug addict, calling somebody obese. You know, calling, labeling somebody as something doesn't open up a possibility solution-based conversation. It says that's just who they are. You did this to yourself. You figured out. Yeah, I get it. Somebody ate too many Twinkies. Somebody drank too much scotch. But we don't know what was going on in their life to fully be able to even begin to quantify whether what they've done with their own life is something we don't even know. We don't know what we don't know, but we so easily judge and label. And we use these worn out language patterns because it's familiar. The institutions have stigmatized them. The public stigmatized them. We stigmatize them. Oh, well, I work out every day and I'm maintaining this way. If they cared enough about their body, they'd do this too. They'd find the time. I've heard people say that. And then I've heard them also turn right around and, and, you know, and be like, well, I don't have the time to do that because I've got all this to do. I'm like, okay, you've got all that to do. And you would love to be more in shape, but you can't even seem to open up and prioritize the time. But now we're going to judge this other person and say they should be finding it. Oh, if there's not jobs in your town, then you should just move. We don't know what's going on in their life. They might be stuck in a, in, a, in a house that they're underwater in, that they're upside down in. Nobody wants to buy it. Nobody wants to move to the, to the foothills of West Virginia. So nobody can sell their house and move to where there are jobs. They needed that coal job. Just like maybe somebody in the inner city needed that grocery store to be open. They don't have the money to just pack up and move somewhere. They don't have first last month's rent. Hell, they don't even have enough money saved up for a bus ticket. And yeah, we could easily say, well, they should you know, cancel their cell phone and stop doing this and stop doing that. But we don't know what they need in their life. But we're judging them and we're labeling them and we're stigmatizing them based off what we think 
they should be, do, be able, what we think they should be able to do based off of what we think we can do. Well, I can do this, so why can't you? Well, I can do this, so why can't you? Hot damn, I get shivers when I say that. That is such a dick thing to say. I can do this, so why can't you? (laughs) Really? Really? We're going to say that to people? The infinite ways that people can be raised and live a life that leads them to be standing in front of them. And we're going to have the audacity to say, I can do this, why can't you? Uh, I don't even know where to go with that one. I mean, right? I mean, do you just, do you just hear the audacity dripping off of that statement? The egotistical, almost narcissistic level, and again, narcissistic, subjective perspective, and absolutely something that is worn out. Oh, they're narcissistic. They're somebody who thinks highly of themselves and talks about themselves a lot. There's, there, there you go. That's a more powerful, right? But it's just the audacity that drips from, I can do this, why can't you? Mm, mm, mm. That is just rude. I don't, I don't know. I don't know why I can't do that. That was never something that I knew to prioritize. It was never something I even knew I needed to do. It was not even something I, knew, I was aware of existed. You just don't know. What we think of as common sense, look both ways before crossing the street, may not be common sense to other people who weren't raised around a city or a place with a ton of cars. Common sense is dictated by society based off events that when they happen, uh, the possibility, the probability is, is very high that there is this one particular outcome. That's how it becomes common sense. Right, So looking both ways before you cross the road becomes common sense because if you don't, you see somebody get hit by a car. You think squirrels and deer would have figured this out, but they don't. Raccoons and possums, but they don't. They don't have that filter. They're like, I've seen squirrels. Literally, it's like, are they on the side of the road? And they got, I'm going to bet you four acorns. You can't run from this semi-truck. I mean, okay, so you might win four acorns or you might get squashed by the semi-truck. So we as humans have determined it's common sense to look both ways before crossing. Yet I see tons of people looking down at their phones, crossing streets once, the, once they get the little hand signal, right? They're just they're staring at their phone. Somebody could still run the red light. Somebody could not see them walking and still go to turn left or right and hit them. Pull your head up out of your phone and pay attention. It should be common sense. But it's not, because not everybody is being raised with that same look both ways before crossing mentality. So what you think of as common sense may not be common sense to other people, because in their little bubble, in their little world, it was not taught to them as something that, look, if you don't do this, or if you do do this, this is going to be the probability of what will happen. It should be common sense not to text on our phones while we're driving, yet people do it. Because they do it enough times and they don't get in an accident, they just think, oh, okay, well, that's something that happens to other people, but not me. So when we start talking about common sense, oh, well, I was able to get sober the first time. Why can't you? I was able to get on, you know, um, Suboxone and, and I got sober. Why can't you? I was able to go to the gym and start eating healthier and I lost 60 pounds. So why can't you? That's rude. That it, That is worn out language patterns. And that is not something that we're going to, if we have if you are even remotely still subscribing to those kind of language patterns, I give you permission to release them as of today. We are seeking for inclusivity over exclusivity. And when we label people as something 
rather than just understanding that it's just a part of the complexity of their human experience, then we are painting them into a corner. We are saying, well, that's who they are. But that is not who they are. That is just a facet of who they are. And if they choose to prioritize their life differently, they could easily release that and they could become something totally different. And I'm talking about addiction recovery here. I understand that bipolar and schizophrenia and some of this, maybe it's not as easy. I don't know a ton about those things. But absolutely, if we put some attention, if somebody puts some time, if somebody puts some sort of effort towards their health care and their mental wellness, they would begin to move into a more desirable direction. And if we embrace them as, as, as we should be embracing all of us as these perfectly imperfect creatures, even whenever somebody is a, per, a person living with schizophrenia for the rest of their life, we can say, you know what, that is just the experience that they were, that, that here it is, here it is. And we have a choice, embrace them and, and try to help them have the most uh, you know, awesome life that they can, some sort of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness kind of life. Or we could ostracize them, put them in a, you know, a padded room in a straitjacket and say, well, that's just, this is just your life now. Which one seems more humane? Which one seems more loving? Which one seems more connecting? And the way we're talking about people being afflicted or uh, people living with something, that's how we're stigmatizing them. And now we have discussed recovery language patterns that can now open our minds up to the possibility in the infinite that is the world around us. And it's with that shift in our language that inclusivity over exclusivity absolutely firmly takes hold in our society. And that's a world. That's a world I want to live in. All right, my friends, if you would like to join the hub, jessemogul.com forward slash the hub, get more of this, more of this, but actually in a more defined and amazingly succinct uh, way where you can really learn some powerful, powerful stuff to uplift your recovery uh, right now, immediately today. Again, as always, inclusivity over exclusivity, the power of positive energy, release and flow. Every day is the best day of my life because I wake up sober. Shout out to sunshine, glow on. See you next week. Bye-bye. 